Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today we are continuing our larger discussion on government by exploring a subsection of the conversation. In the last few episodes, we discussed what the early church, the anti-Nicene church, thought of government. They were largely averse to government positions because they often involved idolatry or oath-taking, and they often involved participation in violence, either directly or by command. The early church was willing to give up seeming power and influence because, as Tertullian so beautifully said, it was actually the blood of the martyrs which was the seed of the church. The gospel and the kingdom comes not by lording power over others, as the Gentiles do, but by becoming a servant and being lesser than others. Weakness, suffering, and cross are the way of the Lamb who is slain, and is the way that the Lamb conquers. His followers are called to conquer in like fashion. In the last episode, we got our first glimpse of what Christianity looks like when we embrace the little k kingdoms and toss aside the big k kingdom, when we seek the, to lord power over others as the Gentiles do. Within a few decades of, Constantinian, of the Constantinian shift, the church went from a persecuted church to a persecuting church, a suffering church to an impressive one, a church founded on freedom of association to a sacral one where all are forced in. The visible church was created, and the translucent church became the invisible one. So for this episode, I want to explore the next iteration of the church when it embraces the little k kingdoms and lords power as the Gentiles do. Today we are going to explore the Crusades. Now there are like nine main Crusades that we could talk about. And it's it's not at all my intent to explore each of those Crusades in detail. In fact, I'm not even really going to explore any of them in detail. We're going to be instead taking a bird's-eye view of the era of the Crusades in general, and we're going to be pulling out what I think are a few important ideas to grasp from this era, which will further the topic that we're talking about here. Okay, so with that extended intro, let's jump into the episode. Many people, when they think of the Crusades, think of it as a relatively messed up time but one that is somewhat understandable. While the infatuation with going to Jerusalem, finding relics, and all the religious stuff is maybe a little bit over the top in our eyes, Islam at the time did pose a real threat to Europe. In fact, Islam made its way up into modern-day Europe until the, the Muslims were eventually pushed back. So there were some real fears that the Crusaders were dealing with in regard to being conquered, especially those on the fringes like Spain and Greece. And I want to make sure that I acknowledge that the issue is, is a lot more complex than just, you know, Christians good or Christians bad. But as we move through this topic, I want to help you come to some conclusions by, by trying to be as objective as I can be. To help do that, I want you to be thinking of one question. What fruit did the Crusades produce? That's an important focus. Because we so often get detoured on, on this event and on the topic of nonviolence and the government in general. It's amazing that when we see a serial killer, a rapist, or a child molester and learn that they were abused or had a terrible life, which likely led to their actions, while we might gain some sympathy for them, it doesn't at all cause us to throw out our judgment of them. There are no excuses for such terrible actions, even if we can understand how it was harder for them to fight against the life that they had. Yet when we get to wars, governments, and violence, 
we kind of drop that ethic and intuition that we maintain for individuals for some reason because when we're dealing with groups, it's different. I don't know. But I, I want to hold um, feet to the fire here and not allow that double standard. Because as we go through this topic, I want you to look at the fruit of the Crusades. Put aside whether you understand motivations and not. Okay, we can, we can maybe feel some sympathy. I understand that Europeans may have felt threatened by Islam. and There, there might have been numerous other legitimate reasons that make one desire violence and the lording of power over others. But the question isn't whether you can sympathize with the Crusaders or not. Or whether you're coming from the other side and you all you want to do is vilify them. The question that I want to ask is, is not so much about motives, but it's, what is the fruit? The question here is, was the blood of the Crusaders the seed of the church? Or were other seeds being planted instead through the Crusades? As a little bit of background before, um, before talking specifically about the Crusades, you need to understand some things. First, Christianity at, at the time of the Crusades was pretty widespread around the Mediterranean. Um, in fact, uh, prior to the Crusades, right, you've got Origen, uh, Tertullian, I believe. You've got a lot of people who are actually writing from North Africa. Um, a, a lot of the, the early writers are Africans. I also remember when I was learning a little bit more about Eastern Orthodoxy, I was amazed to discover that their seas um, or locations where, where their highest leaders are located, their original seas like included Jerusalem, Antioch, and Alexandria. And those are places that I, I didn't really associate with Christianity for whatever reason. I, I just didn't. I mean, I, I know Antioch and Jerusalem are in the New Testament, and Alexandria is is in northern Africa, where you have people like Augustine, Origen, Tertullian, uh, and and such in northern Africa. But because modern Christianity just isn't associated with those locations, I I don't really ever associate those with Christianity. So for the Crusaders, who probably had this expanded Christian territory in their recent memory, seeing these places overtaken and Christianity being stamped out, it was probably pretty hard for them. You know, there, there definitely was a threat. And at the same time, Christianity was located much further to the east. Rome and Constantinople, Turkey, were the two most prominent seats of power in the church until 1054. In 1054, there was a, a schism between the east and west, Constantinople and Rome. Now, I'm on the side of the Orthodox Church here because I think Rome was a pretty big jerk. They, they were constantly trying to be the most powerful, whereas the Orthodox Church tended to be more about preeminence among equals. You know, they were willing to give Rome the preeminence. Um, nevertheless, they were, they were still considered equals. But Rome often tried to be lord. Furthermore, Rome did a pretty big thing in that they changed the Nicene Creed without ecumenical approval. They changed, uh, they changed the clause, the filioque, which to most of us today doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. I mean, it just if, if you know what the filioque is, um, when you hear it for the first time, you're like, seriously, that's, that's the thing that caused the church split? But nevertheless, uh, Rome changed this clause to indicate that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son rather than just the Father. And we're not going to get into the, the theological implications here, but it it's um it does have some ramifications for for theological issues some significant theological issues 
So uh, on top of that, it was Rome that severed ties with the Orthodox Church, even though at the notice of excommunication, the Eastern Church begged Rome not to do it. So even though I'm far more influenced by Rome's teachings and thought processes in, in my theology, to me, they seem like they were clearly the antagonists in, in the Great Schism. Now that background is going to be important for us as we move through the Crusades, because we're going to see Rome try to take back land, we're going to see how they treat their eastern brothers and sisters in Christ, and we'll see how their unilateral power infatuation ended up playing out. So 41 years after this schism of the church in 1054, we have the first crusade called in 1095. At least the first crusade as, as we tend to view it in the West. And things are a lot more complex than that, but 1095 is the date we're going with. So as, as usual, though, things are not always quite so clear. So Islam had expanded and overtaken what was once a Christian area. And the Christians had begun to do the same thing at key areas like Sicily, Spain, Turkey. And while things might have come to a head in 1095, the conflict was, was really long in the works. Nevertheless, 1095 is the date we're going with. So with the Crusades underway, we find a number of interesting stories until their end in the late 1200s. Or if you see it as some of the Muslims do, we could, we could expand that until around 1400. The first story I want to highlight out of this, the first fruit, is that of Count Maiko of the Rhineland. Now, interestingly, while the Christians were trying to take back Jerusalem, they didn't tend to have much fondness for Jews. But Count Maiko took this um, lack of love to an extreme, and unlike other warriors, surrounded, he surrounded a town filled with Jews and he didn't offer them any opportunity for escape. Usually people did that like they'd, they'd offer a deal for them or they'd, they'd barter something. Um, but Count Amico, he didn't even let the women and children go. He just killed them all. So some view the Count's actions as the birth of the vicious anti-Semitism we see throughout European history from this point onward. And I kind of don't doubt that. It seems a little bit simplistic to blame it on him. Um, but at the same time... It also seems a little bit too ironic that Count Amico hailed from the Rhineland and uh, was pretty anti-Semitic here, and only a few hundred years later, Martin Luther would arise from the same area and spew his anti-Semitism. And that's right, for, for those of you who don't know, Luther was extremely anti-Semitic. Now, some are going to argue that Luther went kind of nuts towards the end of his life, and, and maybe that's true, maybe he, he went mad. However, I've heard from a number of, of nurses and others who have dealt with the elderly who are dealing with dementia that often what comes out at that point is really what's been inside the whole time. It's just um, now they don't really have the, the social constraints to hold it in. So even if Luther did go insane, I, I think his ideas were inside him all along, and we have to grapple with that. Now hear what Luther says in his book on the Jews and their lies, because um, I think it's great that you hear it from his own words rather than, than me just characterizing him as such. So here, here's a, a quote from Luther. Quote, What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? Since they live among us, we dare not tolerate their conduct now that we are aware of their lying and reviling and blaspheming. If we do, we become sharers in their lives, cursing and blasphemy. 
Thus we cannot extinguish the unquenchable fire of divine wrath of which the prophets speak, nor can we convert the Jews. With prayer and fear of God, we must practice a sharp mercy to see whether we might save at least a few from the glowing flames. We dare not avenge ourselves. Vengeance, a thousand times worse than we could wish them, already has them by the throat. I shall give you my sincere advice. First, set fire to their synagogues or schools, and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom, so that God might see that we are Christians and do not condone or knowingly tolerate such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his Son and of his Christians. For whatever we tolerated in the past, unknowingly, and I myself was unaware of it, will be pardoned by God. But if we now that we are informed were to protect and shield such a house for the Jews, existing right before our very nose, in which they lie about, blaspheme, curse, vilify, and defame Christ and us, as was heard above, it would be the same as if we were doing all this and even worse ourselves, as we very well know. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed, for they pursue in them the same aims as in their synagogue. Instead, they might be lodged under the roof or in a barn, like the gypsies. This will bring home to them that they are not masters in our country, and they boast, but that they are living in exile and in captivity, as they incessantly wail and lament about us before God. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings, in which such idolatry lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught, be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb, for they have justly forfeited the right to such an office by holding the poor Jews captive with the saying of Moses, in which he commands them to obey their teachers on penalty of death, although Moses clearly adds, what they teach you in accord with the law of the Lord. Those villains ignore that. They wantonly employ the poor people's obedience contrary to the law of the Lord and infuse them with this poison, cursing, and blasphemy. In the same way, the Pope also held his captive with the declaration in Matthew sixteen eighteen, You are Peter, inducing us to believe all the lies and deceptions that issued from his devilish mind. He did not teach in accord with the word of God, and therefore he forfeited the right to teach. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews, for they have no business in the countryside, since they are not lords, officials, tradesmen, or the like. Let they stay at home. Sixth, I advise that usury be prohibited to them, and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. The reason for such a measure is that, as said above, they have no other means of earning a livelihood than usury, and by it they have stolen and robbed from us all they possess. Such money should now be used in no other way than the following. Whenever a Jew is sincerely converted, he should be handed 100, 200, or 300 florins, as personal circumstances may suggest. With this, he could set himself up in some occupation for the support of his poor wife and children, and the maintenance of the old or feeble. For such evil gains are cursed if they are not put to use with God's blessing in a good and worthy cause. Seventh, I commend putting a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewesses, and letting them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow, as was imposed on the children of Adam. For it is not fitting that they should let us accursed goyim toil in the sweat of our faces, while they, the holy people, idle away their time behind the stove, feasting and farting, and on top of all, 
boasting blasphemously of their lordship over the Christians by means of our sweat. No, one should toss out these lazy rogues by the seat of their pants. End quote. So let's uh, recap some of those highlights here. Basically, burn the synagogues, take away their safety on the roads, don't pro- promise them safety, let them get jumped by people if um, don't offer them protection, kick them out of their houses, not only their temples, but also their houses burn down, make them sleep under the elements or in barns, um, take away all their money, and if they want to convert, then we can give them some money so that they can feed their starving families. There's there's Luther for you. And of course, Luth, uh, anti-Semitism in the Rhineland doesn't stop with Luther. You don't have to be savvy to know what's coming next. Micah and Luther were both anti-Semites, and about 300 years after Luther came another anti-Semite from the Rhineland, Hitler himself. Hitler even used Luther to prop up his own anti-Semitism. So are the Crusades responsible for anti-Semitism? I'm not necessarily trying to make that case. Uh, People hate and make enemies. It's just kind of what people do. But Christians are to foster love and restoration. It may be a Christian thing for me to struggle with loving my neighbor, and maybe even with getting into fistfights with them. But how does a Christian get to a point where they're massacring or advocating the massacre of a multitude of people? It happens when they're given the opportunity to, to make others their enemies. When we do as the Gentiles do, and go to war or wield and lord power over others, or determine that other people are enemies, it creates evil on a scale that I can't even fathom from anyone, anyone, let alone Christians. Christian government and a Christian embrace of violence as legitimate uh, means led to a Micah's massacre of the Jews, which subsequently led, influenced, or coincidentally, whatever, led to other anti-Semitism in Germany, in the Rhineland, and in Europe. A small-scale holocaust was a fruit of the Crusades. The second event I want to explore is the sacking of Constantinople in 1204. Now remember that Constantinople was an integral part of the Christian church, uh, the Church Universal, only 50 years prior to to its sacking in, in 1204. They were still pretty much the same church as, as the one in Rome. Yet in 1204, crusaders from the West, who were supposedly helping and defending Constantinople, entered the city and devastated their brothers and sisters in Christ. They slaughtered, they raped, they robbed, they pillaged, they looted, and they desecrated. And this is what happens when Christians embrace power and war as the Gentiles do. Brothers and sisters are no longer brothers and sisters, but objects. Another interesting event that came out of the Crusades was the Children's Crusade of 1212. Now, there are aspects of this which may be legend, but for the most part, the core of the story is, it stands, based on historical evidence. Christians from around Europe thought that one way they could win their wars was if they would send their most innocent members of society, their young children, Surely the purity and innocence of children would be protected by God, and the children would be unstoppable. Needless to say, many of the children were captured, enslaved, used as brides, or whatever else. When Christians try to lord power as the Gentiles do, God becomes a talisman and an object to leverage for his favor over our endeavors. 
It's why alongside the little children's crusade, they did other things like try to manipulate God, uh, like putting in God we trust on their currency, or putting under God in their Pledge of Allegiance, or their king started having prayer breakfasts and mandated that there be prayer in schools, even and especially if the Jews didn't like it. They started getting bumper stickers that said, God bless Europe on it. And of course, we here in the United States can look at the Children's Crusade and all of those talisman-like actions that uh, they took in Europe and realize that that's just ridiculous and, and that's what stupid people did a thousand years ago. And that is, is so below us. We know that God is not a talisman. Alongside the mainline crusades against Islam, there were also numerous crusades during this time against other factions of Christianity, like the Albigensians or the Cathars. Instead of these internal crusades, which extended beyond the Islamic crusades, that we see men like John Wycliffe and, and Huss martyred. Interestingly, many of those martyred during this time are people and groups like us who are against the sword being used in the name of the church and are against lording power like the Gentiles do. Prophesying against the state and refusing it the power it craves to wield in the sword will get you martyred faster than just about anything else. Just like in the last episode when um, we saw that it wasn't debauchery for which you got killed, it was treason against God, because that's also treason against the king. If you, if you break the mold and you aren't willing to socially identify through baptism, um, child baptism, whatever, if you're saying, I'm not going to be a part of your, your sacral society, that's going to get you killed faster than anything else. If you can't be on board with the military, if you can't baptize your kids, then you're basically, you're toppling that deck of cards like Havel says in his article. The state seeks cohesion and power, and anything which potentially undermines that is a severe threat. So whether it's Havel's greengrocer not putting out the sign that the state gave him, a Hussite condemning the use of the sword, or an American refusing to stand at attention for the flag and national anthem, our government's power relies on the propping up of idolatrous and violent pillars, at least when your government rules as the Gentiles do. But if you have a government built on love and service, truth and freedom of choice, you don't run into all the problems you find when trying to rule like the Gentiles. You don't massacre anyone, though there may be some momentary small-scale violence which the group then addresses. You don't rape your sisters in Christ or slaughter your brothers on a citywide scale. And if you do so on an individual scale, you'll be held accountable by the community. And when there's divergence of ideology, if it's about something really big and important, you don't burn people at the stake. The worst you do is restrict an individual from the community in hopes that your community is so good they'll freely choose to re-enter in a process of repentance and restoration as they seek to rejoin, if they choose to, of their own free will. The government of Christ looks very different from the government of the Gentiles. Now, since we are only halfway through our sub-series on ruling like Gentiles, and it's not really the happiest of topics, I want to end this episode with a brief counter-example, and one of my favorite stories ever. And part of it is, it's just a good story, but uh, another reason I want to tell it is because 
a lot of times, especially when we get to, like, let's say, the next episode uh, on the Reformers or, or in the United States when we talk about slavery, and people will often say, if it's about you know, their group or, or their heroes, well, they were men of their times. They just, they just didn't realize what was doing. They, they were saturated in their culture, and how could they know that, that such things were bad? And, of course, that applies to horrendous things like crusades and slavery, but that doesn't apply to today uh, abortion and homosexuality. You know, of course, people should be able to see that that's just horrible. Um, people can't be men of their times today or women of their times today, but they could be in the past if there are heroes. And um, I, so I want to tell the following story um, for two reasons. First of all, to – well, I, I guess for one reason, to, to undercut this idea that people are men of their times. Um, is it true that you're influenced by your culture? Sure. But you don't have to be, and this next story is going to show that. And and beyond the b- beside the next story, also you should be able to think back to the anti-Nicene Church, who didn't burn people who disagreed with them, uh, who didn't do violence, who didn't advocate violence and and power. And so to say that somebody's a uh, person of their times when it's very clear that there were people a thousand years before them who didn't do the evil things that they did and knew that they were wrong, it just doesn't fly. Um, but the, the other thing is, you know, the, the story that I'm about to tell you, it shows you that even in these times of the Crusades, there's somebody who's doing something different because it's clear that this isn't, the, the Crusades aren't following Jesus. And when you see people that know better, if you remember back to uh, to the Benjamin Lay episode, the June nineteenth uh, episode, um, we talked about Benjamin Lay, right? He saw that slavery was evil, and he tried to show that to people too. And when you see that there are people standing up for something and trying to point out what's right, it makes it clear that you don't have to be a person of your times. Being a person of your times might be the easiest thing to do, but you don't have to be. So right in the middle of all this nasty crusading, there lived a man who became famous and remains famous to this day, and that is St. Francis of Assisi. Now, St. Francis was a a pretty special guy, and he was all about loving the unlovely, which included both the poor and one's own enemies. He even left great wealth and entered into poverty in order to put his money where his mouth was. Well... St. Francis decided one day to walk down to the front lines of uh, one of the the crusaders' groups, and then he kept on walking right into enemy territory. He walked until he was captured, beaten, and taken to the sultan. Now, the sultan was going to kill St. Francis and the, the guy who accompanied him, but after hearing how boldly and lovingly Francis talked, the sultan was intrigued and hung on the words of St. Francis as well as on his brave action of approaching him unarmed. The sultan said, If all Christians are like this, I would not hesitate to become one. But unfortunately, not all Christians were like Francis. In fact, not even most were. Francis hit home on what it meant to be ruled by Christ and to rule as Jesus does, as an ambassador and an emissary of God. Now, I think Francis also hit home on why we are so drawn towards ruling like the Gentiles. Francis said, If you own possessions, you need weapons to protect them. And so we do not own anything, and we are at peace with everyone. James 4 says basically the same thing, just a little bit differently. 
James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask of God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with, friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So Francis was able to avoid being a person of his times because he got rid of those desires that James talks about, which wars within us and causes us to be at war with the world and to, um, to not adhere to God. We rule with power and resort to sword because that's the only way you can keep physical, tangible things like property and borders protected. When you fight against flesh and blood, against brothers and sisters, and against neighbors and enemies, you need to cut through them to protect the goods and spaces you want preserved. And you cut through their flesh with swords of steel. But when you battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, and against lusts and desires, you're governed by and war for a different kingdom, but one which is far more expansive than merely the physical alone. Christ's kingdom and battle may be in the spiritual realm, but its results and victories are extended into the material realm. Just as faith produces good works, so our victories in the spiritual realm produce good fruit. However, when we try to rule as the Gentiles and we battle first in the physical realm, it fosters and produces wicked fruit of lust, greed, materialism, and all things like these. So what we see in the Crusades is a bastardization of the Big K kingdom. They were more right than we are today as they waged a holy war, whereas we waged unjust, quote, just wars. The Bible doesn't give us any parameters for a just war. You won't find that concept at all in the Bible. What you will find in the Bible is holy war, a war of judgment waged upon other nations and a war of relentless brutality. The crusaders were being pretty biblical when they slaughtered and when they conquered in the name of God, more biblical than we are in the ways that we fight and justify our wars today. Holy wars are a biblical concept, just wars are not. If you want more on that, uh, this is a, a very similar, very similar to the concept we talked about with spanking. You can go back and listen to that episode. And um, Yoder's book on Christian attitudes to war, peace, and revolution uh, talks about it quite a bit. So in summary, there's so many motivations for the Crusades. Economic, religious, power, trade, whatever. Christians know that they, just can't, ju uh, they can't justify violence for those things, though. But there's a catch. Violence can be used for politics, for nations. If a nation's borders, economy, or religion are impacted by another in these areas, don't they have a right to bear the sword? Don't Christians, then, have a right to bear the sword and to kill heathens and to kill those who don't conform to a particular subset of religion in a sacral society? Because they're doing it for the government. A marriage to politics and the state allows Christians to do things that they otherwise would never have excused doing on an individual basis or even on larger group basis, bases. A Christian nation never ends up being Christian, uh, being Christians running a nation, but a nation that runs as a nation and just happens to be composed of people who call themselves Christians but don't really act like it. Sacralism, the visible and invisible church distinction, 
kills the peace and purity of the church and fails to hold anyone accountable for the meaningful tenets of Christianity. In fact, it often ends up persecuting the real Christians and failing to convert anyone. We're still trying to get our witness back for something that we as a group did almost a thousand years ago, because when you talk to atheists, crusades are one of the things that they're going to bring up. In fact, today we're often found digging the hole deeper and deeper in our attempt to grasp at power in pretty much the same way that the Crusaders did, and as the Gentiles do, through our country, the United States. If only we could hear the words of Christ to love, and the words of the Sultan when he saw St. Francis's love. If only all Christians were like Christ, maybe others would actually believe. But until then, let's keep doing what the Gentiles do. Because don't we want a king like all the other nations? That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.